iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. Thanks for coming out on this special event today. Just want to uh, remind you uh, there's no recording or photography allowed during our event. And we are uh, recording this for a podcast. Uh, so by being here, you're agreeing to be uh, recorded for that. Check iTunes Store out in the next few weeks on the uh, Greg Matola podcast. It'll be available as a free download. So now I would like to introduce our moderator for today, the managing editor of Filmmaker Magazine, Mr. Jason Garasio, and writer-director Greg Matola. Let's hear it for him. Hello. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Greg, thanks for coming out. Thanks, Jason. Um, so uh, we're going to show some clips of Adventureland, and we're going to talk to you about the movie, and uh, you know, and then we'll open it up at the end for uh, Q and A for anybody who have any questions. Uh, I guess to, to start off, Greg, um, you know, let's just talk about just getting the you know the screenplay together. You know what, you know what were some of the things that inspired you to write it, and uh, you were you were doing TV at the time that you started writing it, right? So, yeah, I, I wrote this. Um I was working on the TV show Undeclared, one of Judd Apatow's shows, and I was working with a lot of young people. The cast was, you know, people like Seth Rogen. Seth was probably 17 or 18 when we started that show. And the, a lot of the writers were very young, and I started to um, get nostalgic for my lost youth. And I wanted to write a movie about first love, and I wasn't sure actually what the setting would be. I wanted to try and write a story about uh, relation, a relationship comedy about young people, kind of like a Woody Allen movie with uh, a few decades shaved off. And I, I just felt like that's, a, you know, like the show Freaks and Geeks or like Judd's work, um, a, lot of, a lot of stories about young people and young love are often treated as, as less nuanced, less psychological, and I want to try and get inside that and do something kind of bittersweet and a bit sad. Uh, I like that tone a lot. And then one day I was hanging out with a bunch of the writers on the show. We were drinking quite a bit and sharing, swapping stories of worst jobs we ever had. And I was telling stories about working in an amusement park on Long Island in the 1980s, um, which isn't the worst job I've ever had. Uh, that would probably go to working in an elevator parts factory in Chicago like a Sinclair Lewis novel that summer. Um, but the amusement park was a fun, ridiculous job, and I, I thought of putting these two ideas together and began, uh, began the script. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in that time that you were working on it, uh, uh, Judd came to you to do Superbad, and, you know, that, that blew up and was great. So did that, did that help at all in the process of trying to get Adventureland made after, you know, having that film come out? Yeah, I think I probably couldn't have gotten Adventureland made without Superbad. Even though I was trying to, I was going to try and raise money for Adventureland. Literally, th the week I was planning on sending it out to uh, companies, to distributors and studios, uh, Judd called me and said, "Do you want to do Superbad?" So I put it down for a year. But the truth is, it's it's the story is I think ambiguous enough, uh, kind of low key. The fact that it's set in the 80s was not perceived as a commercial thing by the money people when I started shopping it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a much smaller budget than Superbad, so... But, you know, nonetheless, I think, yeah, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened without the success of Superbad. I think it's a, it's, it, 
it's kind of weird when a movie falls between being an indie film and a mainstream movie, and this one definitely does. It's, it's just kind of a no-man's land of marketing. Mm-hmm. And to segue into our first clip, you know, it, uh, give us some of the, I guess, lows of uh, working at an amusement park. What are, you know, what are the, some of the things that you wanted to highlight in the film that uh, goes through the everyday life of uh, someone working at uh, a place like this? Well, the first clip we're going to see um, is Jesse Eisenberg's first day on the job, and he's being shown the various game booths he's working at. And uh, I liked the setting of an amusement park. I guess I like it as a a metaphor for suburban life. It can be incredibly lonely and kind of dull and, uh, you know, at times depressing. Um, But... Amusement parks themselves, like in fiction or in songs, like in Bruce Springsteen or Tom Waits songs, is often a, a great setting for a place that can be terrible and awful and, and kind of shabby and falling apart. And then it becomes a really magical place in, in other times. I mean, I think we're still all suckers for that childhood feeling about twinkling lights and getting on rides. And um, I remember from that summer, I'd be miserable hearing the same songs over and over again on Top 40 radio. And then suddenly a great song would come on and you'd be, you know, if you're lucky, flirting with a, a, an attractive coworker, and the sun would go down and the place turned into a really great place. And I, I hope the movie moves in between those two moods of, of uh, extreme depression and elation. No, it's not that extreme. But uh, So yeah, let's say we should take a look at this one. It, it'll give you a sense of the low-key style of the movie. Uh, I don't have much work experience, per se, but um, I'm sorry. Okay. Bobby? Oh, they're gone. This is James, and he's uh, playing for a games job. Games? Oh, great. Uh, Good. Let's get you set up. Actually, Bobby, I prefer a rides job if it's still open. You look more like a games guy, plus I got at the games application. So, uh, all right, my name is Bobby. Okay, rules. No freebies, no free turns for your friends, no free upgrades, no free food. So just nothing is free here. Uh, Everybody has to pay for everything. And more importantly, uh, working in games, no one ever wins a giant panda. Yeah, we don't have that many left. Cool. Can you give me a t-shirt, please? Here, I have a resume. I don't know if you still want to take a look at it. Um, uh, James, may I pronounce that right? James? James? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay, by accepting this t-shirt, you are... Hired. Well, Sorry. usually a... More of a ceremonial thing. The t-shirt. Okay, new guy, let's get this over with. Here we are at the first of many games. This one is inexplicably called the Flying Dutchman. Even more inexplicable is how they decided to spell it. Hey, Jerry. One dollar buys five rings. If one of the rings lands on one of the red bottles, they win a giant panda. That is a giant Yeah, it's the best prize in the park. And that's because this game is unwinnable. Observe. I'll drop a ring from three inches away. So... Nobody ever wins. Someone wins a giant 
and on your watch you should just go home because you're fired, okay? So the object of the game is to knock the hat off the dummy with a softball, except, as you'll see, half the hats are glued on. Really? Yeah. I mean, we pay little Malaysian kids 10 cents a day to make these toys. We can't just give them away. You get a five-minute bathroom break every two hours. I recommend saving a few of those up in case you have to go number two. Brennan, they got you working on games? What the f***? You know that demented person? Yeah, I used to be my best friend. Huh. And I turned four. So if you stand directly below the hoop, you'll see that it's been hammered into an oval shape. But from back there, the sucker just can't tell. Jesus, that's so wrong. A criminal abuse of the laws of perspective. Yeah, well, people are getting ripped off. Yeah, yeah, Trotsky, let's get you a booth. So your life must be utter s**t, or you wouldn't be here. I was supposed to go to Europe, but my family has money problems. Wait till your parents start making you pay rent. My dad even makes me pay utilities. And we're not giving it all away. You gotta pay a ticket to get the curse words. That's right. We did that because my 22-month son is here, and <laughs> he's never heard me curse once. So uh, was, was Jesse uh, always the first choice? I was very lucky. I, I got um, almost every actor I first wanted for the main roles. Jesse, Kristen, um, Bill Hader, Kristen Wiig, Martin Starr, Ryan Reynolds were people on the top of my list when I set about casting this. Uh, my only hesitation with Jesse was that I loved Squid and the Whale so much and there's some overlaps with the character and I didn't necessarily want this movie to be the movie that's not as good as Squid and the Whale but uh, it's, it's, it, Jesse's just really you know, I really love him I met with him and, and, and knew right away I couldn't, there really wasn't anyone else that could capture that amount of awkwardness uh, and energy uh, he's very very smart and I needed somebody who kind of had that sincerity um, and he, he's very good at playing the naivete of the character and, and making you feel like he needs to grow up. And with, with Bill and Kristen, uh, did, did, did you let them riff at all with their scenes? Because they're pretty much together the whole time with, with their scenes. Or would you do something where let them do it on page and then the next shot, uh, you know, have them uh, do a little improv? How, how did they work together? I did something slightly different with them. Um, because of their Saturday Night Live schedule, they could only be on set for four days, so we were going to shoot all of their scenes back to back. And I knew having them, I really shouldn't hinder them, that they would bring something special. The way the characters were written, they were kind of more of a bickering couple when I first wrote it, and we made the bickering extremely low-key and made it something where they never were in agreement about anything they said, but they were never mad at each other just like slightly exasperated because ultimately uh, this is a movie about a lot of bad relationships and Jesse Eisenberg's character is somebody who uh, is looking for answers and there's nobody around him to tell him how to take control of his life. His parents are very stuck in their world and very narcissistic and that's, that's just, he has no one to turn to. Martin Starr's character is a great guy but he's also very stuck. Uh, and so, it, strangely, they became the best relationship, the best example of a relationship in the movie, which is kind of absurd, because uh, I remember from working in an amusement park, people who run those places, they kind of see themselves as showbiz types. They, they're, they're like impresarios um, on a very, very, very small scale. And I think, you know, the kind of jokes, they're very low-key jokes, as I keep saying, 
but it really it amuses me people who take extremely seriously the most mundane and unimportant things the idea that you have to rig these games so that you save what fifty dollars a year in terrible stuffed animals uh, would always crack me up working at the job it just seemed it seemed like such a waste of energy um, but you know that's that's they took it very seriously. It's also the code of the carnival to um, be ripping people off, I think. And how, how was the process of finding the amusement park? Um, the place I worked at in the 80s on Long Island has been uh, renovated quite a bit since I was a young man, and it's much nicer and too family-friendly now, uh, and very corporatized. I mean, a lot of things. In, in deciding to write a period film, it's amazing how much seems quaint when you realize you don't have to write in cell phones or Twitter or iTunes or anything like that. Uh, or the, yeah, the internet, cell phones aren't part of the picture. And also, the world was less corporate. All the smaller mom and pop amusement parks have been bought up by big conglomerates, and they're all part of chains now, like like a lot of the rest of the world, like all of Soho. Um, and uh, as someone who moved to Soho in 1989, it has changed quite a bit. Uh, and so, so that park didn't feel right. Kennywood is in Pittsburgh. Uh, it's a great park. It's, it's on the his National Historic Register. The only two amusement parks on the National Historic Register are Kennywood and Rye Playland, which we also considered. So it, hasn't, it didn't have a corporate parent. It actually got a corporate parent about a week after we finished shooting. I think it's the only reason they let us shoot there was that they were selling it and they didn't care if we like broke the roller coaster. Um, and uh, I also went to college in Pittsburgh, uh, Carnegie Mellon. So the script was written to be Long Island where I grew up. And once I could get my head around giving up the glorious Long Island accent, uh, which is pretty amazing and it's, when you hear it full on, uh, I thought, okay, the Pittsburgh accent's pretty interesting too. Although we brought in dialect coaches to see if the actors could take it on and no one could do it. It's really a strange accent. Uh, <clears throat> so Kennywood was amazing. They, they, we made it look much smaller and more run down, but because it isn't all spruced up and, and contemporary looking, it, it's, it, it served our purposes. and They were really incredibly nice. So in, in the next clip, um, Jesse, uh, his character James, is kind of, uh, you know, seen the whole lay of the land and now the uh the i guess hottie of the uh of the park shows up right yes. oh yeah okay yeah. all right let's let's do it Lisa P? Did you hear that? Lisa P's back. Lisa P's back. I'll make you a star. Bread it, bread it. Lisa P's back. Yeah, who's Lisa P? Oh, mother of crap. Who's Lisa P? That's Lisa P. Look at the shape of her. The platonic ideal. That the higher truth. Look, look at the 
a little portal of light just below her crotch, right where the thigh meets the pudendum. The pudendum? Are you pre-med? I'm telling you, man, I've had dreams about that diamond-shaped portal. Okay, she's coming over here, man. Be cool. Okay, I'll try to hold it together. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Joe. So I didn't expect you to be back here. Oh, man, I had my whole summer, like, mapped out. Laying out by the pool by day, dancing by night. My dad got injured on the job. He's laid up, so I gotta help out. Sorry to hear that. My mom has shingles. Oh, well, I gotta go run to Music Express. I don't want Paulette bitching me out on my first day. I'm Lisa. James. I heard you've lost a giant at the knife point. Did you? Yes, my legend precedes me. What? Uh, uh, it's nice to meet you. Now, though set in Pittsburgh, uh, Lisa P. does look like a Long Island girl. Well, because the actress Margarita Leviva is actually born in Russia. She moved to the United States when she was 10. And there's a very big Slavic Russian community in, in Pittsburgh. It actually it worked. But she was, in my mind, a kind of Italian princess that I know from youth. Um, not that we didn't have a lot of Russian and Polish uh, people in my community. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, was, it was fun to actually, I mean, first of all, I, got, I wrote the, that song into the script. It's a Rolling Stones song. It's not a terribly famous one. It's on side two of Tattoo You. Tops. And uh, yeah, it's called Tops. And that album is like one of the records I owned and played endlessly in 1979. Uh, so, you know, for better or worse, this is one of those movies where it is kind of the director's record collection. There's, there's like 40 songs in the movie. Uh, but I just felt like it had to, if it's going to be personal, if it's going to be a recollection of a time, I really wanted it to capture things I remembered. Um, so that was really cool. We had to actually send the scene to the Rolling Stones. Really? We sent DVDs to every member of the band, like one you know, an island off of the coast of Africa, you know, or something. they went all over the world and somebody watched them. I don't know if they probably all handed them over to their housekeepers and said, tell me if it's okay. And uh, two months later, they said, yes, you can use the song for not the amount of money they're used to getting because this is a low budget film. So that was exciting. But I mean, that's really one of the highlights of the film really um, is, is the soundtrack. I mean, that's one of the biggies I feel is, I mean, uh, it, amazing songs. Uh, the Cure, uh, Lou Reed, uh, uh, New York Dolls, uh, the list goes on. But uh, uh, amazing songs throughout. Um, was it that that was? But like you're saying, that was a key to you. You wanted basically like your playlist from you know that time in your life. Yeah, it, it is. It is a mixed tape of 1987. Um, there's two kinds of music in the film. Largely, there's the top 40 radio stuff that plays the amusement park every day. And then there's the what we would call back in the 80s college rock, um, or now it would be indie rock. The, the bands that are bubbling up from the underground, the replacements, and Husker Du, and, um, you know, I, I wanted to get the Smiths in there, but we couldn't afford them. Uh, but stuff that was really meaningful and important to me that the main characters, Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart's characters, bond immediately over liking the same music. And it is a kind of shorthand for storytelling, but I think... I think the style of the movie is almost kind of like a pop love song. I mean, it is meant to to capture those. 
you know, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel with this film. It's it's a summer love story. We've seen them before. I'm just trying to make it personal enough in a time period that maybe hasn't been done this way. I didn't want it to be a big 80s kitsch fest, although it's hard to avoid that once you start, you know, trotting out the side ponytails and the mullets uh, and the, you know, a lot of blow dryer action going on back then. Um, someone asked me what I most miss about the what I most miss about the 80s, and uh, my answer was my hair. So, uh, um, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> although I don't miss my hairstyle from the 80s. Uh, what, what, was it a shock, though, in trying to get all the music and having come... I mean, there, there's also, you know, a very... certain style to the music you have in Superbad also. Uh, so coming from that budget to getting music for this film, was, was that... Uh, uh, kind of shock to try to pull off? Yeah, it's a bit surreal because when you're doing a studio film, the record companies expect a lot of money. They're all hurting because record sales aren't what they used to be. So one of their sources of revenue are, are movie soundtracks and uh, or, or licensing songs for films, I should say. Not the, sound, the soundtracks don't sell at all anymore. Um, so, so for instance, one Van Halen song in, in Superbad, we used Panama, was almost the entire music budget of Adventureland. Uh, it was. It was. So we, you know, indie films can get better deals, and and that that I w I'm excited as many of the songs I wrote into the script actually made it into the movie. As well, let's go to the next clip. Uh, do you want to set up the next one? It's uh, M's party. Oh, this is uh, the beginning of a little romantic exchange with between um, Jesse Eisenberg and, and Kristen Stewart. Um, that's about all you need to know. <laughs> okay, Sue, I'm a virgin at table games, so go easy on me. We're having a ping pong tournament. Hey. Hey. Nice digs. Kind of, uh, begs the question, why the hell you're working at Adventureland? Well, you know, my dad's a lawyer. It's been his lifelong dream for his daughter to work at Adventureland. High hopes. Also gets me out of the house. So we can, uh, drink your parents' booze? That's okay? Absolutely. Oh, this, this is awesome. Great. Don't touch me. Hey, I um, actually brought something for the party. Uh. What is that? It's a joint. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Bobby is weird. I had to go get the extra boys to the bathroom, and I went back, and I opened the drawer, oh. and there were all of these pictures of him and Paulette naked. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. <laughs> kind of a weirdo. Can I go for a swim? Anybody care to join me? Okay. Come on. Is anybody else coming in here? It's just, just us. It's not so bad. No, <laughs> it's okay. No, it's okay. <laughs> Do you have any more of that pot? Um, yeah, at home. Why? We should make pot cookies. <laughs> okay. That would be so fun. You would, have you have you done that? I have not. I've had cookies. Right. <laughs> My connections have all dried up. That's why I'm asking. Your connections have dried up. Where do you think I have like ties to the underworld? I own five <laughs> joints. 
He's gonna like put out a hit on somebody. Yeah. 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 Do you want to come in? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my god! <laughs> I got you. I got the door. It's only three feet, so I can handle it. Okay. Let me get a drink. Okay. Come on. Come in? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'll meet you inside. Okay. I'll meet you inside. Okay. Okay. Boner! You got a boner! Brennan's got a boner! <laughs> Apparently the kids can hear the word boner. Um, so this is obviously not one of those classy Miramax period pieces. It's not, not Jane Austen. Uh, but hopefully true to... And, and, and unintended boner syndrome is very serious. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so it's a, it's a many are afflicted. How, um, how did uh, Chris and Stewart uh, come to get the part? Kristen is somebody I, I didn't... Uh, I auditioned a lot of people for the part, and Kristen is someone I only just had a meeting with. And like Jesse, I had a, one hesitation, which is that she was younger than the character is written. And I didn't know if that would throw a lot of things off in the script, because she has other relationships in the movie besides Jesse. Uh, but I didn't feel I needed to audition her, because I, I knew her work well, and she was just my favorite ch person for it. Uh, she's a very serious young woman. She takes the work very seriously. She's got a really amazing BS detector. She, you know, is in the if she's in the middle of a scene and it doesn't feel real to her, she can't proceed, which I'm fine with. I want I want actors who who, you know, it, the, the the movie rises and rise, you know, it completely will rise and fall on it, authenticity. This kind of film, uh, and uh, she's. You know, she's someone I find interesting to watch, um, just even think. Uh, to be pretentious, there's a quote from Orson Welles saying that the difference between th theater and film is that thinking is a dramatic action in movies. And if you ever watch clips of, um, of you know, Academy Awards or something on the Oscars, they'll, they'll put together all these clips of people, and half the time it's thinking moments in movies. It's someone realizing something or having a feeling, it's all in their face. and. I, I find that Kristen just looking in her eyes and, and wondering what she's thinking is, is automatically interesting. Uh, she also, you know, it's lucky for me that she did this uh, vampire picture you might have heard of. Uh, she, I think it's called Twilight, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah whatever. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, but she actually auditioned for that while we were shooting. The director, our, our schedule was so short and she couldn't leave, so the director came to Pittsburgh and auditioned her for Twilight. And one day she came in and said, oh, I got that movie, and it's, yeah, it's cool. She was, couldn't have been more low-key about it, and then we had no idea. It was going to mean that she, for the next decade she's going to be followed around by gangs of 14-year-old girls calling out Bella. So that's its own fate, I guess. And did, uh, did Kristen and Jamie have time to uh, rehearse, rehearse at all before shooting started? Did, or did you see kind of a chemistry instantly? Um, yeah, we, we had a, a really short prep schedule, so we just would squeeze in little sessions. Um, but they got along really well 
right away. Uh, you know, Jesse was made nervous by her, which worked perfectly for the part. So, uh, Kristen is is surprisingly unflappable for. Uh, she was 17 when we shot the film, but yeah, they they I thought they had really great chemistry right off the bat. And and like you say, I mean, Kristen goes through. I mean, all the characters pretty much go through a lot in the film, but Kristen's character goes through a lot as Jamie's does, uh, uh, Jesse's does also. So. Uh, you know, is is it hard to write a, a meaty role for a female lead? Uh, you know, is is that difficult? Well, that was one of my ambitions in making this film: is that the lead female character be as hopefully complex as the lead male character. That it wouldn't it wouldn't just be uh, the love interest, the object of desire. That she's actually she's the character who's going through the most difficult stuff in the film. She we find out that she's got a family tragedy that she's coping with and the, the fallout from it. And she's in the middle of, of a lot of really complicated feelings. There's one scene that I really love how she plays. She's, she's telling this terrible story about the tragedy in her family. And she tells it in this very matter-of-fact way, like as if she's just saying, you want to hear something really screwed up. And every actress I auditioned for that role tended to read that monologue as if it was, you know, they were, they were doing something incredibly you know, Eugene O'Neill or something. It was really, really dramatic. And she understood that someone that young who was still in the middle of trying to process something that tragic wouldn't, ha wouldn't be there yet, that they wouldn't be able to talk about it. And in, in making it kind of thrown away and matter of fact, and even a little like grin on her face, like this is the most screwed up thing that's ever happened to me. Uh, but she could be just telling a story of something that happened to her at work. She really communicated something that felt very real to me and would also be an obstacle for the main character because he could see, oh, this person, are they, you know, he's falling in love with somebody who may not even be ready for love. Um, the irony is that he's not ready for love either. And I guess I just wanted this to be a classic, messy relationship movie. And they both really are great at that. So I think you, you, know, you, you changed kind of some of the style of what we've seen of this, you know teenager, you know, young 20s relationship comedy, especially with, with Jesse's character where, you know, we, we've seen kind of the awkward protagonist, you know, in the past, but, you know, he, his character is a little different than what you've seen, especially him play in other films. You know, were, were you aware of that when you were writing it that you kind of wanted the main character to maybe stretch or do things that you hadn't seen before in this type of genre of film? Well, I, for better or worse, I was basing it on... I thought if I'm going to make fun of other people, I'm going to have to make fun of myself. So I based a lot of his mistakes and awkwardness on things I remember doing. Um, now that I've finished the movie, I find myself wondering what the hell was I thinking, <laughs> uh, putting that out there. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of... You know, I've, I've worked in the world of Judd Apatow movies, and there's a lot of really, really funny stuff about certain kinds of guys, and he's a slightly different guy, but I think it's okay to mix it up. Uh, he's, he's, he's a true romantic in his mind. Um, in a way, the genders get reversed at points in the story. He's, he's the guy who is, is, you know, the vulnerable one, and uh, uh, but, you know, Judd's movies do that, too. I mean, you know, there's really funny scenes of guys acting like guys aren't supposed to act, and, of course, you know, in Superbad, the scene of the two guys telling they love, they telling each other they love each other, is um, was one of my favorite scenes in the film because it's sincere and it's okay to be vulnerable and all that stuff. 
So let's go to our, our last clip, uh, which, um, I don't know, do you want to lead this in? Is this is this is toward the end of the movie. This is this is an example of a more melancholy scene in the film, although um, there's a lot of that in this movie. And uh, it's it's meant to sort of sum up a kind of feeling at the end of summer and at the uh, when you're at the point of making a decision about whether you're going to leave your hometown or not. Uh, and it's it's a. Uh, it's, it's a nice moment between Jesse Eisenberg and Martin Starr. Yes! We got the Viacom, fellas! We got the Viacom here! I need some press and fire, but I can handle it! I think I got this under control! Get Friend of Eric Bone, do you, huh? Yeah. How are you gonna pull off New York now? I can pull it off. I'm stuck here. What's the point of being a writer or an artist, anyway? Herman Melville wrote will be Dick. And he was so poor and forgotten by the time he died that in his obituary, they called him Henry Melville. You know, like, why bother? They're just going to forget our names anyway. I heard Em went back to New York. I wish it didn't end like that. I should have... I don't know. Get behind me. Boom! I got two. There's one. There's two. Like that. Boom. Boom. Boom, baby. Boom. Your Herman Melville story, that... That's bull****. It's true. They called him Henry. <laughs> no, I mean... He wrote a 700-page allegorical novel about the whaling industry. I think he was, I think he was a pretty passionate guy, Joel. I hope they call me Henry when I die too. Yeah, one can only hope. Woo! Ugh. Brennan, uh, don't get all drunk and fall asleep. Why? Because I'll jack off on your face. Okay. I'm gonna go. What? We'll see you around, Frito. All right. <laughs> Good luck with him. <laughs> Even. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> That's nice, buddy. <laughs> that must have hurt. The uh, it might seem like a, a post super bad gratuitous thing to have a grind punch in the film. There's many more that precede that, and that's a, that's the payback scene. Um, but I have to say, that was my next door neighbor, and he would punch me in that part of my body uh, any chance he had, and he was incredibly fast, and I could never catch him after he did that. So for better, I finally got biographical. Back at him. Yeah, I guess. Um, let, let's. Uh, I need to talk about Martin Starr because he's great in this film. Um, he plays Joel. Uh, you've seen him in Knocked Up and Super Bad, but he usually has a lot of facial hair. <laughs> and in this one, he's very clean shaven. But um, uh, you know, he, he's he's great in this film. Uh, is is that kind of just uh, contractual? Uh, you know, throw him in there. <laughs> but <laughs> it's. I, I mean, Martin. I worked with him on an episode of Undeclared, and and he was in Super Bad, and. But Freaks and Geeks, uh, Martin was great on Freaks and Geeks, and that was a show that 
I thought about a lot while I was writing this because it was one of those depictions of middle-class suburban life that for me felt very much like a got it right. Um, I feel like a lot of mainstream depictions of middle-class suburban life tend to be on the sentimental, everyone has a heart of gold, you know, Hollywood, the, you see that life, you know, in Hollywood comedies and it's not quite, it doesn't always feel quite right. And I know that Judd does it very well. And when they did that show, they were they really wanted to get some get at the heart of something more nuanced. Um, so I thought of Martin immediately for this part. And this character is kind of a tribute to people I've known in my life who were very smart and turned me on to like great books and music and movies. And for whatever reason, were were very stuck in their lives and couldn't make the the next step. They couldn't get out of their town or they couldn't. You know, they could, they were afraid to put themselves out there in some way. Uh, people who I knew who were really talented writers, but wouldn't show people anything they've written, or they'd take ten years to finish a novel. Um, and Martin is 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 that kind of guy in the movie. But Martin brings his own soulfulness to it. He's uh, he's also very very dry, which I love. So, so so you know, just thinking back on your career, you know, you did Day Trippers and Superbad, you've done TV. I mean. You know, we're, we're, just talk about a little bit how you feel like you've grown as a writer and a director, you know, to make this film, to get to this point. Um, there's a huge gap between my first little indie film, Day Trippers, and Superbad, and I had to learn some lessons about myself, uh, get out of my own way. I did Day Trippers. It got a, you know, small distribution, but it got out there, and it opened doors for me. And I had another film set up, at Columbia Pictures that was going to be a much bigger film and then that after spending two years on it it crashed and burned even though we were in pre-production and we had a green light the whole thing uh, just went away and I spent a little too much time feeling sorry for myself and trying to figure out what to do and I probably had a fantasy idea of what I wanted my career to be and then luckily Judd Apatow called and said do you want to do Undeclared and I moved to LA and worked in television for three years and learned an enormous amount, and and uh, then you know Judd asked me to do Superbad. I, you know, I aspire to do other kinds of movies. I don't. I, I feel like right now I'm in the young adult section of Netflix, but uh, I think I'd like to graduate to post 30s storytelling. Um, but you know, I, I, you know, young filmmakers often ask for advice and for me it took me a long time and I made, I made every mistake you can make and I still uh, got lucky so uh, tenacity is also is the word that comes to mind more often than not. Well I think uh, we'll open up to questions now. Um, uh, does anybody have any questions for Greg? I just want to repeat it for the podcast. So just the uh, comparing and contrasting uh, comedy and drama for the coming-of-age story. Well, because I wrote this before Superbad. Um, I really, when Superbad was done, I really wrestled with whether or not I wanted to make it yet because it would be two movies about people roughly the same age um, in a row. And I just decided it was very much a different tone, and it was more of a dramatic 
slice of life, naturalistic tone that I wanted. And maybe because I feel like I don't see that many of those films, except in the indie world, and, and those movies struggle to get distribution and to get seen. Uh, I certainly th thought about movies growing up. A movie like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, you know, Sean Penn is brilliantly funny, and there's a lot of really funny performances in that movie, but that movie goes into very naturalistic and, um, you know, in some places, difficult places. I mean, Jennifer Jason Leigh's character uh, is, is trying to decide whether or not to have an abortion. Uh, and I remember seeing it and thinking, wow, that's, that feels so much more like real life to me than a lot of other teen stuff. Um, you know, I mean, the John Hughes movies had a rhythm and a feel of life that I, I, I did appreciate, especially because they had strong female characters that, that were really interesting. Um, so, you know, it was a conscious decision for this movie to have a different tone. Jesse, people compare him to Michael Sarah and, and, and say, you know, oh, I guess you couldn't get Michael Sarah. Michael and Jesse are, you know, they're similar in the sense that there's not that many young actors who are like them. But uh, Jesse has his own thing that is completely his own, you know, it's unique. Um, and I, I pushed him to not just go for jokes. And the one thing, working with Judd Apatow, for instance, on Undeclared, we would do table reads of the scripts and we, there'd be a joke that would get a huge laugh in the room and I'd see Judd cross it out with his red pen and the writers would always say, why are you killing my best jokes? And Judd would say, because it's, it's, it steps on the emotion. It's not telling the story. It's, it's whatever reason. He was quite willing to get rid of stuff. Uh, you know, I, I know I'll lose some of the audience that wants more jokes in a movie like this. Th it's a trade-off. I think it, the verisimilitude of the rhythms of, you know, summertime and real life provides something else. Maybe makes it a more reflective kind of movie. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that works out. Go ahead, right. Obviously, this story is uh, rooted in some of your past experiences, and uh, in your last film, you know, it was uh, also pretty somewhat autobiographical for Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Would you say that, you know, for writers slash directors, that these type of films that are, you know, familiar and real, or kind of uh, ones you gravitate towards, and you know, kind of make as some of your early defining films? I I definitely gravitate toward them. I I. Um, not, I guess when I see a film, when I feel like a film is going in an obvious direction, I, I'm a little disappointed. Um, so high concept movies that follow a, a formula aren't my favorites. Um, I like slice of life movies. I, what made me want to be a filmmaker were films, American films from the 70s and European films. Um, having said that, you know, I like a lot of different things, and and the next movie I want to do that I'm going to do will be a very different style. Um, but I, I think I just feel like there's not as many of these kinds of films, um, and I can't. You know, I tried my best to make it a good version of that, uh, and I, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. I'll just pass. Yeah, go ahead. I feel like we have a monopoly right here on yeah, the questions. I'm wondering if you can talk a little more about the 1980s. If that obviously was an important thing to you, stuck with it. Um, why and how? I mean, it's something studios are saying is not marketable. It's, you know, I've heard, yeah, it's too early to do a period piece about the 80s. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, your decision to stick y with that? Yeah, it seemed to, when we were trying to raise money for the film, it seemed like 
uh, a frivolous thing to set it in the 80s because the studios, the different companies we went to um, said, you know, young kids are going to look at it and say, that's not my generation. And older audiences who generally don't go to the movies anymore anyway are going to say that's a kid's movie. Um, and, you know, that's been a challenge in marketing. They really had to deal with that perception and try to figure out because the movie does play differently for people who were there than it does for people who were 21 now. Um, but I, as a writer, felt it, it was just much more interesting for me to, to try and dredge up details from that time in life. And, and there's a certain sadness I think a movie takes on if, it's, if it feels like it's, it happened 20 years ago. And that's really all I wanted it to feel like. It's, this is just the past. It wasn't until later when I started writing it and I realized, you know, without cell phones and the internet, uh, well, let me put it this way. I think everyone thinks that their youth is, was in more innocent age. Not just that they were more innocent, but the times were more innocent. But it really is hard to look back on the 80s and not feel that way, because the world, you know, we move, we get a lot, we have access to a ton of information now with the internet uh, and, our, and our cell phones. Um, that it, it feels, it, it's, it feels quite different. So I just became very stubborn about it. I think maybe because I saw it as a personal short story of a film and thought it would just lose something if I didn't, if I couldn't write about some things I actually went through. And, and I thought that was the best chance of it feeling authentic even for people who weren't there. You know, this, the terrible summer job is a, a rite of passage for most people. Um, and you know, for those of us, I'm very lucky that I get to do something I love now, but I'm also glad I had many summers in a row where I did terrible jobs because I, I like to think that it gives me an, an empathy for people who, you know, life's hard for everyone. And, uh, you know, it's if you didn't come from much money, this movie might mean something to you. Um, this is probably not a movie for people who have gigantic trust funds. They may not relate. Go ahead. As a guy who also grew up in the 80s, um, I noticed things like the Neil Young 84, 85 t-shirt and the collared t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. And I wondered the extent to which you drop things in there that are, you know, Easter eggs of your own actual experience versus, you know, art decisions that are made by somebody else out there. That's about it. Yeah, things like trying to clear T-shirts for movies is a much bigger problem than anyone ever realizes. Uh, it's it's a giant amount of work, and um, it, but you know, I, I I told the costume designer, this uh, very talented woman, Melissa Toth, early on to try and do the best you can to get as many. And we've got you know a Lou Reed T-shirt, um, David Bowie's in there, and I I wanted yeah those things to be floating around. Um, it, it was weirdly hard to get cars from the 80s um, on a low budget because people preserve their 70s muscle cars and things like that, but they don't, no one's like keeping 80s cars in the same condition. They don't collect the, them. So like getting a, a, a K car, which is the main character's parent's car and he drives it a lot in the movie, uh, was hard because we had to have doubles. We had to have two of them, the same color, and it was actually hard to find like a decent K car. Uh, I guess no one likes front-wheel drive as much as they used to. Um, but um, it's, uh, yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of little things. And But also, there's a lot of stuff where people have furniture from the 60s still. And they, you know, I felt like I could justify cars from the 70s because in the modest community where I grew up, people didn't just, you know, the 80s 
came along and they didn't just switch their homes over to the set of Dynasty because they didn't have the money to do that. So once again, I didn't want it to feel like a total 80s kitsch fest, uh, just, you know, like the past. Hi again. <laughs> hey. Uh, it seems like there's like a bittersweet melancholy about uh, like the amusement parks of like the 80s and stuff like that. Now that, you know, assuming you're a New Yorker and whatnot, I was wondering how you feel about what's happening to Coney Island. It's depressing. I think it's, I think Coney Island is, has been a really special place. And if it turns into a corporate playland, I just don't think there'll be much character left. Uh, I just don't know how you stop it. It's, you know, like a lot of New York City, uh, you know, it, it spreads and makes life more convenient and gives you one more shopping opportunities. And look, I love the Apple store and I'm glad there's one close to where I live, but uh, it's, it's just a different, it just it makes the place different. And, and, you know, and then other neighborhoods, everything's changing. I mean, there are places where cool things will be uh, retained, but that, that one does particularly depress me. All right, we have time for two more questions. Hi, before I tell you my question, um, I just had a move. I was in the East Village, and I lived just a, um, across the street from where uh, Melville, had, he and his wife lived. They, he had no money. His grandparents were born here, and he had no money. He moved back with his wife and lived with a couple. And NYU tore down St. Anne's Church next door to me also, 120 East 12th Street. And I thought, God, he probably walked by there with his wife. And now it's been torn down for another hideous megadorm. So I'm grieving that really bad. Maybe you'll do a film about that. I'm also fascinated by sexuality. And what you addressed in the brief bits that I saw, that has nothing to do with, in my mind, with the 80s. It could be any time. One, that women, when they're aroused, they can hide it where the young man can't. And that's very embarrassing. <laughs> so that's kind of a universal that reaches out. But in terms of the last scene where the sexuality and aggression, it was fascinating to me. I've always wanted to ask, what is that about? The young man says, if you fall asleep, I'm going to do da 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 I'm not going to repeat it. What is that about? And you said your neighbor and you put it in your life, like he would hit you. I mean, is it, was, do you think it's like he's attracted to you or is that like a rite of passage? I'm just fascinated. I'm human. I had to ask. No. Uh, well, that line actually is another line straight from life. He said that to me once. And it, it's just one of those things. If someone says that to you, you don't really forget that. Become, I had the same question in my mind. What I think it's, you know, it's uh, people who aren't in touch with something. I don't know what that something is, but you know, there's there's a, there is a a bit of a tiny bit of sexual politics in the movie because the character that Kristen Stewart plays, we discover is having a kind of affair. I don't want to give too much away, but there's but there's a judgment that other characters have about her that essentially boils down to a sexual woman is a slut and a sexual man is a stud and it's a very small-minded thing i've encountered uh i mean we still live in an age where a lot of teenagers are saying chris brown was right to beat up his girlfriend uh and i feel like you know have we made no progress in that regard it's is this is this exclusive to an american uh, um Puri puritanism i don't know but i I wanted to use it as a function of the plot to make, put Jesse Eisenberg's character in a situation where he has to decide whether he believes that, whether he accepts that, that vision, which I, I do not accept it, but you know, I'm also older and can claim to have some wisdom. 
for young people, it's, it's, it's one of those things that uh, if everyone else around you seems to think that way, it's, it's harder to, to buck it. Uh, but that w it was important to me that he is a compassionate guy and hopefully the movie says something about that without being too heavy-handed or preachy. So right, what, so one more. One more question. I'll keep it in the row here. Um, so this is really a film about, uh, it seems just in the few clips you did, uh, the failure of parents almost um, to the characters. They keep talking about how, you know, my parents lost their job or they're laid up and I've got to go back. With you having a kid now, how has your perspective changed on that? And yeah. Well, I think anyone who has a kid will tell you that one of the first things you go through is saying, God, I've been really hard on my parents. <laughs> you really start to feel something. It's like, I have complained about my parents for a long time, and they, I, I owe them an apology <laughs> because they <laughs> did this. Uh, um, so, but having said that, I mean, I, I, you know, I, um, the, the parents in this film are not based on my parents. Uh, they're based on people I observed growing up. And I think when we started the movie, the element of the main character, Jesse's character, thinks he's going to go on a trip to Europe. It's his graduation gift from, from college. Um, and his parents tell him at the day of his graduation, your dad's been demoted. We don't have the money. Sorry, you have to get a summer job. And all of his wealthier friends are heading off to Europe to go backpacking and have the time of their lives. And you know, it's as, as, as disappointments go, it's not the worst, but he's, he's feeling sorry for himself. And I was trying to capture a time in the 80s where I, I remember kids, classmates, their dads were getting laid off. I mean, it was a different economic picture up until a year ago. Uh, so when, we, when I was selling the film, people just kept saying, well, no one's going to relate to this because this isn't... And I said, even before the economy collapsed, I said... You know, but if you read about it, there's so many stories of kids who move back in with their parents. Um, it's just part of the progression. The world I grew up in was very like third generation American. The idea that your kids do better than you and that's what your life is about uh, was a strong one. And, and I felt like the generation behind me are the ones that are like there's a, there's a ceiling to that. You can't keep doing better than your parents. So I certainly wanted that to be floating out there, not so much as a condemnation of a generation of parents, but much more as a, a sense that this young guy um, doesn't have anywhere to turn for wisdom about becoming a, you know, an adult. It's nice to end on a bright note, Greg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's it, everybody. Thank, thanks a lot, Greg. Thanks for thanks, coming out. Thanks so much for sitting through that. Thank you very much, thanks, uh, Greg Matola, and thank you all for coming. And Adventureland opens on Friday, April 3rd at a theater near you. So check it out. Thanks again for coming.